We have been spending our time in the book of Exodus, and it's really been an amazing book to see these great pictures of redemption. God here way back in the Old Testament is showing the world how he's going to save people, what his redemption will look like. And we've come to a section in Exodus where uh, I would suppose we have the tendency in daily Bible reading plans to kind of hum through chapters 25 to 40 because you get a whole lot of details about things that we kind of go, okay. <laughs> and, and there are some really amazing things. In fact, when my, my father was here, he even asked me, he said, what are you going to do with that text? And so I handed him my notes and said, well, here, look at that. <laughs> See what you think. Because we have the tendency to look at all these things about the tabernacle and go, well, okay, what does that have to do with us? Because from this point on, chapter 25 all the way to chapter 40, these last 16 chapters are all about worship. They're all about worship. There's the one pause in there where we get the golden calf in chapter 32, but that's about worship and about who the people are going to worship. And so everything about the rest of this book centers upon these pictures of worship that God is giving them. And yet in the midst of the details, we're going to see amazing things about God's plan to save his people. And as we've noted so often, these images point forward to Jesus and the things that Jesus was going to do. And the tabernacle is perhaps one of the greatest pictures of that deliverance and that hope that we have. And so that's where we're going to spend our time being able to look at this morning or this evening in this picture book that, that God has given. I, I submit to you that Exodus chapter 25 and verse 9 uh, is the, the thesis for the rest of the, of the book. You'll notice what he says there in verse 9. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all its furniture, so you shall make it. Now remember what is going on here at this moment is God has called Moses up on the mountain and and he has said something that is absolutely amazing and quite stunning. Verse 8. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. All of this is about God wanting to dwell with His people. And the details of the tabernacle that are about to be given are all given for a singular purpose, is that God is coming down to be with His people. He desires to dwell with them. And so now in verse 9, this opens and tells us, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle, and all his furniture, so you shall make it. In fact, you will notice, we'll highlight it in these chapters, and you'll notice as we continue through, that this is one of the repeated themes that follows the rest of these 16 chapters. In fact, just a few verses later, in verse 40, God says, See that you make them after the pattern for them, which is being shown you on the mountain. Over and over again, God is going to tell Moses, I am giving you a pattern. I am giving you a picture. And I want you to make this tabernacle in the same image and according to the same pattern that I have given you. And the reason why that's so important is not only because we need to do things according to God's plan and do things according to His pattern and do things according to His way. And not only because God is going to come down and dwell with them in this tabernacle so that they will be able to see that God is with them as they make this journey. But above and beyond all of that, 
The reason why this needs to be following a pattern is because this earthly tabernacle is picturing a true heavenly sanctuary of God. One of the things that we noted before that is fascinating is that we've pointed out that the tabernacle is a picture of Sinai. As we looked at earlier on Mount Sinai, we saw that only one, Moses, is able to go into the presence of God. We have 73 select ones who are able to go partially up on the mountain and the rest of Israel must remain at the base of the mountain. And here's this same separation that will happen with the tabernacle. Only the high priest once a year can go into the presence of God. Those of the tribe of Levi who are priests can operate within the holy place but not the most holy place and then the rest of Israel stays on the outside of the tabernacle altogether. The tabernacle is a moving Mount Sinai. But not only that, it is a pattern of a heavenly reality. And the writer of Hebrews seizes on that in Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 5. They serve a copy and a shadow of heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. And notice that the purpose the writer of Hebrews saying that is not, now you need to do everything according to the pattern because if you ever deviate from the pattern, God is very angry with that. True point, but not the point here. The point is that this pattern was patterning after something that already existed. A heavenly reality, a heavenly sanctuary, and this earthly tent was now patterned after that. Now I have an illustration that comes to my mind that extraordinarily dates me, that half of the room will not know what I'm talking about. But when I was a kid, I do remember that my mom would buy these patterns to go to the store and buy fabric so that you could cut the fabric, you would lay this huge pattern out all across the, on that, that fabric and cut it out according to the pattern and sew it all up and make clothes. I know that's a crazy thing, kids. <laughs> I was actually alive to see my mom make clothes. <laughs> and you did it according to the pattern. That there was a reality that you were going for and the pattern was just simply a shell or a shadow of the reality of what you were looking for. And that's what is happening here with this tabernacle. Not only is it a moving Mount Sinai so that God can be with his people, but it's actually representing a greater reality that already existed in heaven. And here is this earthly tabernacle. And why God is going to highlight again and again and again. You must make this according to the pattern. Because this is reflecting a greater reality in heaven. Now sometimes when it comes to the details of the tabernacle that we're going to look at tonight. It's easy to get lost in the details and sometimes get overboard and try to see Jesus in every little thing. And why is there six branches and does that have something to do with Jesus and counting off some some things like that. And I don't think the goal of these three chapters was for us to be able to go through every little detail and say, see how you see Jesus in every little detail. I would say if we are supposed to do that, God didn't give us the manual on how to do that very well. And so I don't want to step into things that I'm just completely guessing. 
But there are bigger pictures that are certainly involved in the tabernacle and the articles that are found in the tabernacle. The writer of Hebrews seizes on and says, these things were pictures of a reality of what was going to happen when Christ came. And that's what we're going to get to look at tonight. The first thing that we notice, and you'll notice in your Bibles from verse 10 to verse 22, is something that is called, that we know very well as the Ark of the Covenant or the Ark of Testimony. It's actually called the Ark of Testimony in Exodus. We don't see Ark of the Covenant until Numbers. And so here is the Ark of Testimony. Now, what is particularly interesting is verse 10 says, they shall make an ark out of acacia wood, is that there are three arks that are found in the Hebrew Scriptures. And this is a unique word. And when God uses it, it's pretty fascinating. We know of the most famous one, I suppose, Noah's Ark. And when we think of Noah's Ark, it is the place of salvation. It is the place of deliverance. If you remember the book of Exodus opens with Moses being put in what we most of our translations say a basket. However, it is the same Hebrew word ark. He's put into an ark and notice again that is the mechanism of salvation for Moses as the decree goes out from Pharaoh to kill all of the baby boys by throwing them into the Nile that are two years old. Now we come to a third ark. And this is the Ark of Testimony. And we're going to notice here that this is also the place of salvation and deliverance. Notice the detail there in verse 17. Exodus 25, verse 17. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, and a cubit and a half shall be its breadth. There is a description here that this is a place of mercy. A lot of translations read mercy seat, and that can be a little bit confusing because there is no chair there. There is no actual place to sit. Think of like seating something. This is a place where something resides. And this is the place where mercy resides. It is on top of this ark of testimony that you are going to be finding the place of mercy. In fact, in verse 22, God also describes that this would be the place where he will meet Moses. God and Moses are going to communicate to each other at this place where Moses will get the directions from God and then go and tell the rest of the people of Israel. Now, what is fascinating about this Ark of Testimony and this mercy seat, this place of mercy and atonement, is the imagery that comes out of what this this, uh, article is. Because remember, a little bit later on, they're going to be told that they're going to put these two tablets of stone, which Moses is up on the mountain about to receive at this moment. He's up there receiving the laws and God is about to give it to him when we get to chapter 31. He's in the process of receiving these laws and these two tablets of stone are going to be placed into this very ark and then the lid is going to be put over it. And the imagery is dramatic because here is the, here are the Ten Commandments, here are the tablets of stone being placed into the ark, and then the atonement cover, the place of mercy, is resting over top of where the Ten Commandments, the two tablets of stone sit. An amazing picture. Here is the law, and you know what we better put right over top of that? Mercy and atonement. And that's what's being described there in verse 17. I mean, you're going to make this place of mercy, this atonement lid that's going to rest over the top of the ark. 
the place of deliverance, the place of salvation. This is what the New Testament is driving at so strongly. I'm going to use the net translation here uh, because it it renders it very closely to connect up to with Exodus with intention. Romans 3.22, for there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but they are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God publicly displayed him at his death as the mercy seat accessible through faith. It was to demonstrate his righteousness. Because God in his forbearance had passed over sins previously committed. Most of our translations rather than mercy seat say propitiation, which I would suggest out of 300 million Americans, probably five know that word exactly what that means. It's not a word that we use. A lot of translations will use atonement or sacrifice of atonement. Either word, atonement or mercy seat, is connecting you to the Ark of the Covenant. It's reaching back to this place of mercy. And notice that this is what God is saying here in Romans, is that Jesus is the place of mercy. He is that atonement lid. He is the place where you find that salvation. God put Him forward as the mercy seat, as that atonement lid, as the one that can give you salvation and give you that mercy Through faith. That's what Paul is using in that imagery of propitiation. In fact, this word is used another place in the New Testament, same Greek word for propitiation, this hilasterion. And notice Hebrews 9 5, how it translates it. Above the ark were the cherubim of glory, describing the ark of the covenant, overshadowing the atonement cover. But we cannot discuss these things in detail now, to which I hang my head and go, man, I would like to hear a whole lot more about that. And I guess I'll have to wait. (laughs) Really neat scene that's, that's given there and describing this and describing the cherubim that overshadow the atonement lid, the mercy seat. It's the place where atonement is found. And the writers of the New Testament again and again drive at Jesus is that atonement place. He is where that mercy is found. What is happening in the Ark of the Covenant is picturing a reality by which you would come before the presence of God and find mercy through Christ rather than what they're doing here and that they're going to come into the presence of God with the high priest and find mercy on this Ark, this atonement lid it's a beautiful thing that god is doing right out of out of the gate and describing worship is that we're going to make an ark of the covenant we're going to make a place of salvation an ark of salvation and the very top of it will be filled with mercy and atonement i just would say as an aside we shouldn't lose sight of that being one of the big ideas about the presence of god And sometimes we talk about the tabernacle and going into the presence of God into the most holy place and only in terms of a terrifying experience. But notice the terminology also speaks to when you went into the presence of God before this ark, salvation ark, mercy is what sits on top. Atonement is what is accessible. And so it wasn't intended to be sheer terror only, as we often kind of picture it, but that you did come in and this is the place where mercy would be found and why the Day of Atonement, when the high priest went into that room, was such a big deal. 
And that was a great thing that the people could rejoice in, that atonement could be found in the presence of God. The second article that he describes for us in verse 23 of Exodus 25 that carries us to verse 30 is something that is called the bread of the presence. An interesting picture that's given to us here. Making this table out of acacia wood and then laying it with pure gold. And the picture that is given here is in verse 30. And you shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me regularly. It seems likely that this was, again, a reminder of God's presence, just as manna was a reminder of God's presence in the wilderness every day, bringing bread to the people. So now here is this bread placed on a gold table within the tabernacle, again reminding the people of the presence of God and God's deliverance and God's provision that He had given the people. What is particularly interesting that we ought not miss is if you go back one verse to verse 29 notice what is closely connected to the bread of the presence it says there you shall make its plates and dishes for incense and its flagons and bowls for which with which to pour drink offerings and you shall make them of pure gold notice that the bread of the presence is joined to a drink offering And we've made mention that we've noticed in the past couple of lessons that these images of eating and drinking are common images of a covenant meal. And the same thing is being drawn out here is that here is the tabernacle, here is the presence of God, and here is where the priest can come in, in the holy place, where the bread of the presence is and the drink offerings, and there is communion between God and Israel. And so this bread of the presence of God, God is here and you are able to come in and enjoy communion with God. You are able to be in fellowship with God and is reflecting this covenant relationship that allows God's presence to remain with his people. Uh, This image, I think, is is so particularly interesting. Ah, I double clicked it. Let me back up one. Where are we going? Nope. Uh, we'll get through it. One of the things that I think is important to bring out, though, before we leave the, the, the bread of, of the presence that here is described on the table, if you think about here is this imagery of this drink offering. And the drink offering and the bread of the presence are in the holy place. And I just want you to consider for a moment, this tabernacle is not very big. And how close the presence of God is. Because remember, that's the whole idea of the most holy place. Is in the most holy place, that's where the Ark of the Covenant is going to go. And that's where the presence of God is. When those priests were allowed to come into the holy place, consider how close they are to the presence of God. And as you come in... Something that had to be prepared and dealt with every single day was this bread. The bread needs to be on the table and the drink offering needs to be put there. And there is this imagery of a continual communion because God is right behind the curtain right there. As you're moving about the holy place with the bread and that offering and the drink offering... God is right there. 
And the imagery is so powerful about here we're together in that, a continual reminder of that every day as the priests would go in again and again and again. This is what makes such a powerful image when we come forward to the New Testament and we read these things that Jesus says and we sometimes lose the, I guess, the awe of what Jesus is saying about himself when he describes himself as the bread of life and connecting up to this image that it is through him that you have life. But the idea is not just, oh, we get to have eternal life in Jesus, but that in Christ, this is how you are in communion with God. This is how we are joined together in that fellowship. It's connecting to that tabernacle imagery. In fact, that really comes out in John six fifty four when Jesus says, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks on my blood abides in me and I in him. And sometimes I have a tendency to just turn that into, well, he's just talking about the Lord's Supper. He's not talking about the Lord's Supper per se in terms of what we're going to do on a Sunday here. But there is the picture of this communion with God. This is what kind of blows their mind that they turn away. Well, eat your flesh and drink your blood. I don't understand what you're talking about. Well, we're going to be in such a relationship together. We're going to be in such communion together. We're just going to be eating and drinking and enjoying. It's almost like a metaphor that we use of, you know, we're just going to breathe it in and just soak it all in. That's what you're supposed to do with Christ. And there's the imagery here of this bread idea of how closely connected we are able to be with the Lord. That through Jesus we have true life and we will never perish because of that, but are forever with the Lord. In fact, I hope that that will always be the concept of what eternal life means to us. Is that eternal life is not, now I no longer have a fear of physical death, but eternal life means we are forever in communion with God and never separated. That we are always in His presence and never leave. And this is the hope that's being driven in this picture in the tabernacle of here is not just the bread, It's called the bread of the presence. God is here and you are eating and drinking with God and the tabernacle in his presence. It is a beautiful picture of relationship, which is what God was saying back in verse eight. I want to dwell with my people. Verse 31 through verse 40, the rest of chapter 25, we have a picture of a gold lampstand and and one that we recognize pretty well. But I want you just to visualize that for a moment. This tabernacle, as we're told there back in in verses 3 through 7, is being made out of these heavy linens and animal skins and all of that. And you imagine going into this this, uh, tabernacle, it's going to be very dark in there. And there needs to be light to light the way to be able to see what you are doing in your service before God. And so then there is this light that is going to be put in there, this lampstand that would be made for that. And we see all throughout the scriptures how God identifies himself as light. 
over and over again. It's the very first thing that creation does is let there be light because that is the very character of God and it moves all throughout the scriptures in describing that this is who he is. There is no darkness in him at all. And then speaking of Jesus that he is the true light that gives light to everyone. And then on that great day, Jesus standing up and telling everybody how he is the light of the world and whoever follows me will not walk in darkness but will have the light of life there is this image that we need light in darkness and jesus is constantly reflecting that image is that through him we're able to find our way to the presence of god and that's what the tabernacle is doing is as you'd come into this dark tabernacle, there needed to be a lampstand that would light the way so that we could then act and offer our worship and service before God in that holy place before His very presence. Light is needed to come into His presence. Jesus is the light that shows us the way. Now, in these other two chapters, chapters 26 and 27, He gives more details about the the, the tabernacle. 26 is fairly lengthy in describing all the little things that need to be done so that this tabernacle is according to the pattern. I would like you to see that he says it again in verse 30 of chapter 26. Then you shall erect the tabernacle according to the plan for it that you were shown on the mountain. Notice again, follow the pattern, follow the plan that was shown to you on the mountain. Here Moses was able to see, here's what it's supposed to look like, you know, as I showed you, follow according to that pattern. There is something very interesting about this tabernacle as described here in this chapter. I want you to turn your eyes to verse 33. Verse 33, it says, you shall hang from the curtain from the class and bring the ark of test of the testimony in there uh, within the curtain and the curtain shall separate for you the holy place from the most holy place now, some of our translations use veil i just the reason that would be a little disconcerting is do not think of this as something thin and see-through and sheer veil kind of communicates that to our mind Think like old-fashioned 1985 curtains, thick, you know, that you very much not see through. Uh, That's the idea of what this is. But notice the, the purpose of what the curtain does there. In verse 33, it says, The veil, this curtain, shall separate for you the holy place from the most holy place. In putting this curtain up, in which God's presence and the ark of testimony being inside the most holy place where none could walk in. And then where people, the, the priests could walk in the holy place, there being this thick curtain immediately communicated inaccessibility. Immediately communicates you can't go in there. That is a closed door. That is not a place where you can go. And here is this curtain that sits there in the way. This is what makes the New Testament absolutely amazing. If you remember, in the death of Jesus, there is this statement that is given to us in Matthew twenty-seven fifty that when he yields up his spirit, it says, Behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. That is an amazing thing. 
To visualize that scene for a moment, there were priests who were always in the holy place working. You had to keep the lights going. You had to keep everything moving at all times. And here we are in the middle of the day. And all of a sudden, as these priests there in the first century would be operating within the holy place of the temple, that curtain tears in two. And for the first time, except for the high priest, all of these other priests are now able to, for the first time, see what's in that room. It's a stunning act. As Jesus gives up his life, that one of the most critical details of the events of his final moments here is that did you know that the curtain was torn in two? The curtain of inaccessibility was now torn away. And now access into the very presence of God was made available. That's what Matthew is depicting at that moment. It's not just simply the violence of, well, the earth shook and all of that, and wow, a curtain was torn. With great intention, God is indicating, you can now come into the presence of God because the Lamb of God has been sacrificed. This is what the writer of Hebrews seizes upon in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. Just stop and think about that. Nobody goes into the presence of God. Nobody goes into the holy place, that most holy place. No way. And the writer of Hebrews says, since we have confidence To enter through the curtain by the new and living way that was opened for us by the blood of Jesus. There is accessibility now that the separation between God and his people has been removed because Jesus has been sacrificed. And that is a beautiful picture that is given to us in Hebrews. Again, a stunning picture of what God was trying to accomplish is in the tabernacle. It is trying to communicate to Israel and to the world that you and I just cannot come into the presence of God as we are. We've seen that in Exodus over and over again. We've seen it in the mountain. You're not going to just go walk on the mountain. Hey, everybody, God's on the mountain. Let's go check it out. No way. And here the tabernacle communicates the same thing. Not any old Israelites is going to walk into the tabernacle. You cannot do it. And certainly not any old priest can walk into the very presence of God in that very room where God is. Which, by the way, what's in that room? Atonement and the place of mercy. Now we can boldly walk in to that very place because the curtain has been torn through the blood of Christ. It's setting up for us how we need someone to make a way for us to enter because we cannot because of our sins. We have no right to enter in. But through Christ now he says, let us with confidence, amazing, with confidence, let's just walk in and find mercy, find atonement, find forgiveness. 
find relationship, find communion, find everything that we've been longing for in Christ. This is the picture that God is giving to us in this great tabernacle. Chapter 27, other great things there as well. Very quickly, we're told in verse 8, yet again, as it be shown you on the mountains, so it shall be made. You think getting an idea here about you better do it according to the pattern. Because this is picturing a reality that exists in heaven that has been given to you. And so chapter 27 opens with a bronze altar. Here is this altar now for the people as they would come into the holy place for the priests to be able to be made clean and do their offerings at this bronze altar. The writer of Hebrews sees us on this as well, which by the way, you know we've been doing Exodus. We're going to be doing the In the Wilderness book which is Numbers next, which is absolutely as awesome as Exodus. And then, Lord willing, the second half of this year, the book of Hebrews. And we're just going to have a good old time just taking the thread and running it all together and go, look, Exodus, Numbers, Hebrews, awesome. I'm so excited. You know, this year can't come fast enough, but don't say that because we're just getting older. That's not good. Uh, But I mean, just some great stuff that we're looking at here in this writer of Hebrews, Hebrews 13, eight, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace and not by foods, which have not benefited those devoted to him. We have an altar from which those who serve in the tent have no right to eat. Notice he just all of a sudden turned on that. He goes, all right, we have Jesus. Same today as yesterday and forever. Don't be led astray by false teaching. Don't be turned away because they're all these Judaizers and false teachers about going back to the old law and what you can and can't eat and all that. No benefit to that because we have an altar from which those who serve in the tent... Notice he's think he's broadening out from the priesthood to Judaism. They have no right to eat from. Through Jesus, here we are accessing God. Here we are coming to the altar and we're being made holy and our offerings are being accepted up before God. Here we are pictured as priests as through Jesus able to enter in because you came to that altar to get yourself ready to walk into the holy place. Got to come to that altar, get yourself ready, get yourself holy, get yourself all set to come into the presence of God. He says, we have Jesus. That's how we can do that. And the writer of Hebrews hits on that. Finally, the end of chapter 27, he talks about the oil for the lampstand needs to be given here that always will burn. Chapter 27, verse 20. You shall command the people of Israel that they bring to you pure beaten olive oil for the light that a lamp may regularly be set up to burn. That image is easy. We still use it today. Remember the the Motel 6 commercial? We'll leave a light on for you. This is what this is doing. God's always here. And make sure the oil is always burning in the lamp because God is always here. His presence is always in this place. He is always with his people. All right, let's just roll into one final point then as we wrap it up then and talking about the tabernacle. As amazing as all of these concepts are, there is one big deal the writer of Hebrews puts his finger on in regards to the tabernacle and what that means for us. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 9.11. But when Christ appeared 
as a high priest of the good things that have come. Then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Notice what the writer of Hebrews puts his finger on and says, this tabernacle was a picture of the place where only the high priest could go into the presence of God and make atonement. And so when Christ appears, he doesn't enter into the physical tabernacle that we've read about here in Exodus 25 through 27. He doesn't enter a tabernacle made with hands because the writer of Hebrews has made the point that was a pattern. That was just simply a picture of a heavenly reality. And so Jesus, when he comes, he doesn't enter into that, nor does he come in with the blood of bulls and calves as these priests would do on a regular basis. No, rather what he does is he now goes into the very true presence of God, the actual reality, the real holy place, not the pattern. And when he walks in, he doesn't walk in with something imperfect like the blood of animals. He walks in with his own blood. A great metaphor given here of how through Christ we have this amazing access that here is Christ coming into the heavenly tent. And what was the whole point of this tent? God says, I want to dwell with you. Very first picture of I want to dwell with you in the tabernacle. What do we need? A mercy seat, an atonement place. And so what our high priest does for us is he walks into the real tabernacle of heaven and he goes to the very place of mercy and he puts his blood on it, which is what Romans 3.25 is saying. He's the propitiation, the sacrifice of atonement, the mercy seat. This is what the writer of Hebrews is hitting. This is what propitiation is. This beautiful picture of how he could secure our eternal redemption by walking in with his own blood, which, by the way, sets up something so important. The imperfection of the earthly tabernacle was intended to show what God was going to do in a greater reality. Because we're going to learn blood of animals doesn't work, and the earthly tabernacle is not the actual dwelling place of God. It is a pattern. It is just a shell. It's a picture. It's not the real thing. And this is then where the writer of Hebrews goes in this very text, our final passage tonight, Hebrews 9.24. So when Christ has entered, not the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, Now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf, nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. Notice the contrast. Christ has entered the real heavenly place. And it is distinct from what the high priest of the days of the tabernacle that was on earth could do because the high priest had to enter in every single year. 
The point he makes is high priest can't come in every single year with his own blood. That's a problem. Can't bring in your own blood. You're dead after the first time. That's not going to work. So notice what he says. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Jesus goes into the holy place of heaven, tears down the curtain that separated us from God so that through his blood, we can be with God and God can dwell with us. The tabernacle was set to show as much as God is coming near, there are problems and we needed a greater sacrifice. And we needed a greater sacrifice from a greater individual in a greater tabernacle to accomplish what we needed. What can we say about our Lord who cares so much for us that he would do all this so that we would live with him? Tabernacle scene simply to show that God wants to live with his people. And Christ is the tabernacle through which we enter into the presence of God. We'll sing a song now and we invite you to come to Jesus. And I hope that you see the significance and the greatness of Jesus. And see the greatness of his love. And see that everything that happened in the days of the people of Israel was all just a picture book to show what God was going to accomplish in a far greater reality when Jesus would come to save the world from sins, to be our perfect high priest so that we could enter boldly into the very presence of God to find mercy and grace. Do you need mercy and grace this very hour? I hope you'll consider your situation that God has made it possible for you to come into his presence and to find salvation, to come before him, and receive that this very evening to turn away from your sins. Be immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins. Won't you come now while we stand and while we sing?